The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. This episode is a look back at one of the most romantic aircraft from one of the most romantic eras of aviation, the Boeing 314 Clipper. Now, even if you don't think you know the Clipper, you probably do. It's a big flying boat from the 1930s and 1940s, this massive multi-story aircraft that took off and landed on water. The subject of vintage travel posters showing the Clipper ferrying passengers dressed in their suits and their dresses to Hawaii and other vacation destinations. Museum of Flight docent Bill McCutcheon sat down with me to talk about the Clipper's history, its prominent use by the government during World War II, and the legacy of this short-lived aircraft. been asked to uh, talk about the Boeing Model 314 flying boat and it had the name Clipper because any flying boat associated with Pan American Airways was called a Clipper and that name was taken from the 19th century sailing ships and uh, one trip who was the head of Pan Am thought that was uh, that was appropriate for his uh, flying boats. So his flying boats were named the Clipper and the name and uh, the Clipper, Hawaiian Clipper and that sort of thing. But the uh, Model 314, which was Boeing's designation, really has a special place in history. It, it symbolized a time when the romance of air travel was truly an adventure. And Pan Am's one trip was truly a visionary. Despite the depression, he knew there was a market out there for flying over the oceans. And he had always dreamed of that. And the Model 314 completed that dream for him. It was the right plane at the right time. And it also laid the groundwork for long range land-based airplanes uh, at a later date. So the big question is why flying boats? Why do we need flying boats? Well, as early as 1910, there was a fascination with flying boats and travel over the oceans. And the French were the first ones that got involved in in developing a flying boat. Of course, they weren't flying over the oceans. But as early as May 1919, the first transatlantic flight was made. It was by a Navy Curtis NC-4, and it went from New York to Lisbon. And you're saying, wow, 1919, that's amazing. How long did it take them? Well, it took them 19 days. And a lot of that was because of weather and mechanical issues, but they finally made it. Out of three airplanes that launched, only one made it, however. But it was still monumental. Well, in 1928, uh, we're jumping ahead, but Sikorsky came out with an airplane called the S-38. It was an eight-passenger airplane. And it was one of the first successful flying boats. 
Now, Igor Sikorsky, of course, was a Russian immigrant, came over to the United States to build airplanes, and uh, he found himself quite in demand. And his S-38 uh, was operated by Pan Am, was operated by the U.S. Army, and a group of wealthy people who liked to adventure uh, with an airplane. In fact, the airplane got the name the Explorer's Air Yacht because of that. Well, in 1927, Juan Tripp started his, his first successful airline from Florida to, to uh, Cuba. And he had always dreamed of transoceanic flight. He just couldn't get that out of his head. So in 1934, from 1934 to actually 1936, he made a, a, a bunch of uh, route surveys. And that was both in the Pacific and the Atlantic. He wanted to fly both oceans. But uh, he focused on the Pacific because uh, he had difficulty obtaining landing permits uh, by the Europeans and the British uh, in the Atlantic. So that came a little bit later. But he laid out his, his route of choice from Hawaii to Midway to Wake to Guam to Manila and eventually to Hong Kong. And, you know, it was difficult to lay out these uh, air bases for the flying boat operations. And people probably are sitting there saying, but wait a minute, 70% of the earth is water, right? Should be easy to land an airplane. Well, yes and no. If you're trying to find a safe harbor where you can uh, disembark passengers and keep them safe, not so much. They found that in the Pacific, they found lagoons, but the lagoons were uh, inhabited, if you want to call it that, by coral. And they actually had to go in and had demolition experts actually blast out the coral so they could get lagoons that were deep enough to land a flying boat in. That wasn't easy. They also had to build operating facilities, hotels. They had to install navigation equipment, and this all took a long time to get, get established and a lot of money. Well, they finally accomplished that, and they began the San Francisco to Manila operation in uh, October 1936. And then they later expanded that to Macau and to Hong Kong. It took six days to make that flight. Now, that doesn't seem like, like a short trip, does it? But you consider that if you took a ship, you're talking about 30 days. So that was uh, that was considerably uh, less, and it took about 60 hours of flying time to accomplish that. Now, because of the cost of this flight, in fact, it was for a round trip to uh, Hong Kong was about $1,500, which translates to about $28,000 in today's dollars. But most of the passengers were were wealthy people. They were celebrities. They were dignitaries. People that could afford to spend that kind of money. But there was a market. Well, Tripp knew he needed a longer-range flying boat so he could be more efficient and provide a more comfortable trip, carry more passengers. And uh, so in 1936, he put out a request for proposal to three or four companies. He wanted a long range, longer range flying boat. He wanted a higher passenger capacity. 
He wanted improved passenger comfort. That was really important when these people were spending all that money. And he wanted improved technology and maintenance as well. Well, Boeing let the uh, request for proposal lapse. They said, we don't, why are we going to build a flying boat? We're working on the B-17. We're working on the XB-15. We've got, we're pretty very busy right now. And Wellwood Beal, who was their uh, Far East sales manager, had uh, taken a trip in 1935 to China. He was selling them the P P-26 Peashooter uh, fighter. And on his way back to the United States, he was aboard a ship. And somebody had asked him earlier about the possibility of, of you know, of building a flying boat. And he said, no, nah, that's, that's too far in the future. We can't think about that. But on the way back to the United States, he thought more about that. And he thought and he thought. And he said, you know what? I'm really inspired about that. I think we can do that. So he began to design uh, the Model 314, which is what it turned out to be, on his own. Uh, he was doing it really on his own time. He sat in his kitchen drawing up these plans. The XB-15 wing was enormous. In fact, it was so large that mechanics could actually crawl into the wing during flight and perform uh, minor maintenance on the engines that they had to, which they did from time to time. So he used that wing on the Model 314 because he knew it was going to be a long-range flight and they may have problems and they may need to have that sort of a wing. Well, so he completed his design. He submitted it to Boeing. Boeing reviewed it and believe it or not, they accepted it. And in June of 1936, they still had time, I guess, to submit it to Pan Am, which they did. And then July, just a month later, Pan Am awarded Boeing the contract for the Model 314 flying boat. Okay, so what made the, the, the uh, 314 so special? Well, most flying boats of that time were using wing struts and floats on the wings, and these were causing a tremendous amount of drag. And Boeing said, we're not going to do that. This was Wellwood's design. He said, we're not going to have these struts. Instead, we're going to have sponsons. And sponsons are, what they call them sea wings as well. But they're at the, at the bottom of the hull, and they're a stabilizer. So he said, this will, this will accomplish the same objective, and we won't have the drag with the struts and the floats. So it provided stability on the water. Believe it or not, it actually gave some aerodynamic lift. And it minimized the spray on the fuselage and the tail of the airplane. And it provided a nice boarding platform for the passengers. So it really accomplished quite a few objectives. The airplane was significantly larger than the competition. Sikorsky had come out with an aircraft that was called the VS-44. And then Martin came out with a 156. And neither of them were even came close to the uh, Model 314 as far as size. Boeing had a capacity, the uh, 314, of up to 74 passengers. And... Uh, Sikorsky's VS-44 only had 53, and uh, actually 47, and the Martin had 53. So they were quite a bit less. Now, the 314 never really carried 74 passengers uh, for a number of reasons, because they just, they just never quite got that much demand. But 
also the passenger comfort became uh, the, the primary uh, consideration. And the Model 314 had what I consider unsurpassed luxurious passenger comfort. And the talk I give on this, uh, one of the things I call it is the uh, luxury over the oceans. So it truly was luxury over the oceans, and they wanted it to be that way. They wanted passengers to feel as if they were on an ocean liner in the air. Well, the aircraft first flew June 7th, 1938. The test pilot was none other than Eddie Allen, who was a very accomplished and well-known test pilot. And uh, there's a story about him I won't go into here, but he was uh, later killed in a, uh, an accident uh, flying the B-29 for Boeing. Anyway, the aircraft had some initial problems. It had directional uh, control issues, meaning that it was unstable uh, in a, a left-right con uh, configuration. And the problem was it only had a single tail on the aircraft. So they experimented. They put a, uh, twin tails on it. That didn't accomplish the objective. Finally, they went back to put the center tail in and kept the twin tails. So they wound up with three tails. And that accomplished the objective and made it a very stable aircraft at that point. Also, the sponsons, uh, when they were on the water, and if they had any rough water or they were in a, a turn on the water, uh, the wingtips tended to drag in the water. That wasn't a good thing. The wingtips did have uh, waterproof uh, uh, compartments in it, which was a good thing. But they decided, no, we're going to redesign those sponsons, which they did. And they made several uh, design changes. They lengthened them and changed the configuration of them. And that really solved about 90% of the problem. Well, getting into the war years, uh, April 1939, Pan Am began its first scheduled transatlantic flight, finally. And uh, the first flight was to Foynes, Ireland. And then the United States got into the war. And that kind of put a stop to their scheduled flights. But it also started uh, some military flights for, for Pan Am. And the Atlantic and the Pacific routes that Panem had became uh, vital military lifelines uh, for the military. Uh, Panem only built 12 of these clippers. And uh, the reason being, of course, the war came along and they had to stop production because they needed the, the, the uh, clippers uh, with the military. So nine of the uh, clippers were drafted into the military, the U.S. military. But they were flown by Pan Am crews because they had the experience. They knew the routes and uh, the, the military knew that. So the other three uh, aircraft were used by the British. Now in 1942, this is kind of an interesting fact, Churchill flew home from DC after he had a meeting with uh, FDR. He went over by ship, but he flew home on the uh, Clipper Berwick. And people were really concerned about him flying. But the reason he did it was because uh, the Germans had U-boats stationed out in the Atlantic. And they thought, you know, that trip home could be pretty risky for uh, Churchill. So he decided to fly home, and it worked out just fine. Well, in 1943, uh, Franklin Roosevelt decided that he was going to fly on the Clipper. And he flew to Morocco to meet with Churchill. That was the Casablanca conference. And uh, 
that was quite a, a monumental flight for him. It was the first time a sitting president had flown on an aircraft for public business, for official business. Well, when I when I said there's only 12 built, there's a reason why it was only 12. Because, as I said, the war came along, they had to stop production. But also, it was really the beginning of the end for the Clippers. Because, let's face it, you've, you don't have any runways, right? Uh, you can't. There were no runways in existence in uh, Europe that were long enough for an airplane to land. So that's another reason for a flying boat, right? But after the war, there were a number of runways built by the military for its bombers, and they were long, bomber, long runways. And that allowed the long-range, faster land-based aircraft to make the transatlantic flights. And this is the DC-4 built by Douglas the Constellation built by Lockheed, and later on other uh, longer range bomber or uh, airliners uh, were able to make that flight. So that was another reason why the flying boats just kind of uh, stopped being used. It was very difficult, especially in the Atlantic. They had a number of areas where they had to land, and, and depending on the weather, the landings could be very, very risky. So another positive note for fixed solid runways, right? Yeah, they're always going to pretty much be the same. Well, so that was the end of the flying boats. They still flew them a little bit after the war was over, but they pretty much ran out. 1947, Boeing came out with a Model 377 Stratocruiser. And what they were attempting to do then was to revive the Clippers luxury. And the Stratocruiser was based on a C-97, which was the military Stratofreighter, they called it. And they also the KC-97 tanker. They built about 800 and some of those, almost 900 of those. But the C-97, K-97s were based on the B-29. They took a B-29 fuselage. And they just built a lower deck on it. It's kind of an ugly airplane if you look at it, quite frankly. But uh, the Stratocruiser just was not a success. They only sold, uh, built and sold 56 of them. And they, they were okay for a while. It was a reasonably fast airplane. They put a uh, Pratt & Whitney 4360 almost 3,500 horsepower engines on it. So it was a it was a, a fast airplane, but it just didn't take, people just didn't, didn't uh, they didn't want to spend the money. And uh, so the age of, of a luxurious flight was pretty much over. And as you all know, there's no such thing these days. Well, there's a replica of, the, of a, B14, a B314, Boeing 314 Clipper, currently at Foyne's Flying Boat Museum in uh, Ireland. And it's the only one in existence that we know of. There are no Boeing 314s that are anywhere except at the bottom of the ocean. There was a clipper, and uh, this is a clipper that was flying out of uh, during the latter part of the war years, flying out of uh, Honolulu. 
and they were about 600 miles east of Honolulu, and they had an engine problem, and then another engine problem. So they wound up flying on two engines. Well, you can't get very far flying on two engines. So they decided to land the airplane, which they did, and there was a, a, a tender not too far away that came to their uh, assistance. Actually, it was a, I guess there was an aircraft carrier. I'm more to think about that, Sean. Um, and a small aircraft carrier came over, and uh, they had some mechanics that came out to the airplane, and they tried to repair the engines. Well, you can imagine in water conditions, even though they could climb into the uh, aircraft, uh, the wings, the conditions were not really ideal for making uh, major repairs on the engines, and they were not able to do so. So a, uh, this is where the uh, tender came along, that happened to be nearby, and they tried uh, to take the, the aircraft under tow. And they were doing pretty well. They were trying to tow it to, to Honolulu, back to Honolulu, and the tow line broke. So they tried to re-rig the tow line, and in so doing, the ship and the uh, 314 collided. And it crashed, crunched the bow of the uh, 314 pretty badly. At that point, they said, well, there's just nothing else we can do. We're going to have to abandon this, this effort. Well, you can't just leave an aircraft floating out in the middle of the ocean, right? And by the way, all passengers were rescued and taken aboard the ship. So the, uh, the ship had to... Uh, Regrettably, I hate to even talk about this, but they turned their 20 millimeter cannons on this helpless floating flying boat in an effort to sink it because it was a hazard to navigation. It took them 1,200 rounds before they could actually sink that airplane. <laughs> Pretty remarkable. Anyway, the... Uh, those who know Bob Bogash, who has been a, a, a very real supporter of the museum and was instrumental in, in getting our constellation here, has always wanted to bring this ship up from the depths of the ocean. Uh, whether that's ever going to be accomplished, I don't know, because uh, that's a monumental task and, and, and a very expensive task. And you, you're not even assured that it's uh, going to be in one piece when you bring it up. However, it's at such a depth, and the temperature is so cold that I would imagine it's been pretty well preserved over the years. So never say never, right? Okay, anything else uh, you, you want to ask me? Yeah, you, you talk about it being, the, the clipper being the lap of luxury. About what would it have cost to get a ticket on one of these flights? Um, a round-trip ticket. From San Francisco to Hong Kong was, and these numbers, don't get hung up too much on the numbers because I have found a number of different numbers, but I'm, I'm kind of averaging this at about $1,500 round trip costs back in, in uh, late 1930s dollars. Wow. Translated, that's about $28,000 today. Holy cow. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was very expensive. 
but it gave people, and they, they made a big show. They had they had literally a red carpet that led out to the aircraft, and, and they made a big, big thing about people coming aboard the ship. And uh, they better. <laughs> it was it was enormous. I mean, the uh, just just I'm going to throw some comparison numbers here. The maximum takeoff weight of a Sikorsky S42 was thirty eight thousand pounds. The maximum takeoff weight average of a B uh, Boeing three fourteen was about eighty three thousand pounds. So substantially heavier aircraft. The Martin M130, which was also a comparable aircraft, the gross takeoff weight was 52,000 pounds. Again, we're still looking at about over 30,000 pound differential. So they had to have these enormous engines that produced about 1,600 horsepower per engine. And it had a top speed of about 200 miles an hour plus. But when they were flying over the ocean on their their uh, their trips, they were probably averaging around 150 to 160 miles an hour, because they're fully loaded with fuel. They've got passengers, they've got provisions, and cargo. Okay. Now, am I right that there was a clipper that was uh, caught in the Pacific during the war with passengers on it, and had to tr- they were crossing the Pacific and then turned around and had to head the other way? Does that sound familiar? Well, yes, it was a really, a, 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 they had Pan Am passengers on employees as passengers. So it was during the war. The war had, in fact, it was just the day of the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. And they were on their way to uh, New Zealand. And they had gotten a message. And they said uh, they had special orders they had to open when they, when they reached New Zealand. And they, the order said, find your way home any way you can without encountering enemy attack. Well, they had no navigation, uh, no, no charts that they could follow. Nobody had ever flown this route before. So they, had, they dropped off all but about uh, three or four of the passengers uh, in, in Australia. And then they embarked on their trip home. And it took them, I think it was about 30 days, 30 plus days to make this trip. And they were nearly shot down by friendlies on the route because they, uh, it was, it was the, uh, actually the, uh, the British who had never seen this airplane before. They didn't know if it was a Japanese airplane or if it was an American airplane. They sent fighters up. And the uh, one of the fighters noticed they saw an American flag on the bow of the uh, the flying boat, so they they spared them being shot down and escorted them for a landing. So it all worked out just fine. But they had engine problems. They had uh, the story is an amazing story, and the amazing thing is they actually made it in one piece. But it was just being held together. By the time they got back, American ingenuity. <laughs> you betcha. Uh, you talked a little bit about this, that the the Clipper bases kind of laid the groundwork for some of the the logistical structure that would carry the Allies through victory in World War II in the Pacific, which in many ways was a war of logistics. Well, what what happened was the route that that 
that Pan Am had selected for its commercial flights obviously could no longer be used, except from San Francisco to Honolulu. But to go to, to New Zealand and to Australia, they had to use a different route, a lower route, so it would not, you would not get in harm's way. So that was the route they used, and they, they flew a number of uh, military missions uh, using that route. So they, uh, they accomplished their objective, and later on, they, uh, the Atlantic routes uh, were extended, and they actually included some of the stops that were made by this one clipper that I was just telling you the story about. So they had established some relationships and there were good enough bases where they could land. So they were able to deliver parts, machinery, uh, engines, uh, deliver personnel. Uh, they were a, a really a, a, a very important part of the military uh, effort during the war to get materials and people moved. Right. Did, did any of the fuel stops or anything like that become actual like air bases? over the course of the war uh, that you know? Good, good question. Uh, I, I, I don't, uh, air bases, no, I don't think so. I think these were just, you know, they were, they, were, they were already established air bases, and most of them were British. So I don't think no U.S. air bases were established on these particular routes that I'm aware of. But it still highlights uh, uh, an often forgotten part of many wars history since aviation started, which is civilians flying for the military. We know it yes. happened during Vietnam with flight attendants and, and evacuation flights and, and, and beyond. Yeah. The, the, I think the, the military recognized they didn't have the, the, the personnel, they didn't have the experience and they fortunately realized that Pan Am did. So they actually, uh, the military acquired the aircraft and then leased them back to Pan Am, uh, probably for like a dollar a year. I don't know. but uh, <laughs> uh, And so Pan Am flew uh, all of the flights with their experienced crew. A different sort of lend lease, I guess. In yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they lent them the planes so they can lease them back. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Is there anything else about the, the clipper you want to talk about, Bill? Well, um, let me see. If nothing else for me, I think it's the most romantic aircraft. It truly is, and it's it's uh, it's captured in a very romantic scenario as well. Uh, I'm trying to find my notes here. If I think about any plane that I would want to like resurrect and take a flight in, yes, know, it would cost me a whole year's salary based on that. Uh, well, <laughs> the that you know that ticket. that that is the one. There was another. There was another uh, clipper that uh, was actually sunk in the Atlantic. It was uh, in 1947. The one before that I was telling you about was the Honolulu Clipper in 1945. But this is after the war in 1947, and it was not owned by Pan Am. It was uh, it had been sold a couple of times, and it was called the Bermuda Sky Queen. And they were they were flying. Uh, from uh, Europe to the United States and on that uh, east-west route. And they had 62 passengers. They were in the area of Newfoundland, 
and the the uh, when they had these very strong winds, and they were headwinds, which you don't want to have in any aircraft, obviously. But uh, and they realized they were not going to have enough fuel to get to their destination because of this. So they landed as close to a Coast Guard cutter as they could find, and they were able to uh, to make a safe landing. It took a, a day or so, but they finally were able to offload all the passengers. You can imagine in the North Atlantic, uh, the seas were quite rough. And this was October, so it wasn't the best time of the year either. So uh, they had they had high winds and they had swells up to 30 feet. They were, they were having a, a, a very difficult time. And uh, they finally got all the passengers uh, to the Coast Guard cutter. And they were they weren't even contemplating taking the aircraft into tow because the conditions were so difficult. And uh, the plane was uh, had been damaged uh, in a collision with the cutter. And that's one of the problems that you you're just you're going to always encounter at sea. So we have another clipper that's adrift in the ocean. So the uh, Coast Guard decided it was a hazard to navigation. And once again, they sank the clipper. Now, as it turned out, when they did an investigation about this uh, this incident, the uh, investigating committee uh, actually blamed the pilots for poor planning. They said they knew the weather conditions. Uh, they either should not have, have uh, attempted the flight or they should have tried a different route that would uh, take them out of these uh, strong winds. So, uh, again, nobody was killed, and that's the good news. They lost an airplane. Well, on that note. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing about this. This sure. epic aircraft in, in so many senses. Well, it, 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 it really was a, it was a, uh, it was a groundbreaker. It truly was. I mean, there've been, there've been, uh, you know, uh, planes before, uh, flying boats before, but none of them had the performance. None of them had the range. None of them had the capacity. And you, you got to remember we had, they had capacity in that airplane to, for 74 passengers and 10 crew. And the crew were up above and in very, very nice, comfortable uh, quarters. The uh, Martin aircraft and the Sikorsky aircraft, on the other hand, had very tight crew compartments. And you got to remember, these are very long flights. And you need to have taken into consideration not only the passenger comfort, but the crew comfort. So the uh, 314 not only had spacious uh, areas for the crew, but it also had uh, cots in the back where they could actually go and take little short naps. So uh, it was uh, all around, it was a, a real success, very well thought out. And uh, I'm sure Boeing was, uh, was patting itself on the back that they finally went ahead and, and responded to uh, Pan Am's request for proposal. Thank you so much, Bill. You bet.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I wanted to extend a special thanks to those of you who've been able to support the podcast financially over the past year as museums like the Museum of Flight continue to recover from the economic impact of COVID-19. Your support has meant more than ever, and, and I truly want to say thank you. If you'd like to become a donor and support the podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives, then you can find a link on our website, museumofflight.org podcast, and you can click the yellow donate button. If you'd like to explore more about the Clipper, on your next visit to the Museum of Flight, make sure you stop in the Red Barn, the original Boeing factory. You'll find some information there about the Clipper throughout the exhibits in there. And make sure you check our website, museumofflight.org, first before you come in for up-to-date information on hours and how to secure your tickets. And if you want a bit of a two-for-one, check out the episode biggest of the podcast, one of the episodes of our collections miniseries that we ran last year. This episode focuses on the biggest artifact in our collection, the Red Barn. But listening to the episode also gets you information on how to get a vintage photo sent to you of the Red Barn and sitting right next to the Red Barn in that photo under construction is none other than a 314 Clipper. And not just any Clipper, but I ran the number on it and it is the Clipper that Bill spoke about at the end of the discussion, the, the Clipper that had to fly the long way around the world to get home at the outbreak of World War II. So it's a pretty cool photo, and it's a great episode of the podcast. I'll leave a link to that episode in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. It helps us get boosted in the rankings and algorithms and stuff like that so more people can find the show more easily. It really does make a difference for you to take a second and leave a review. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, see you out there, folks. <laughs>